Welcome to Coach Chefs, the podcast for hungry web developers. I'm your co-host today, Vincent, and with me is... Hedemann Gamboa. Yay. Hi, guys. So for today's episode, we're going to be doing a slightly different format than what we're traditionally used to. We're going to have our first guest on this podcast. And the guest today is actually a special guest. He actually helped put some uh, some initial concepts when it came to Coach Chefs and the intro and outro, as well as like the whole concept of this podcast in general. Um, so with me today is John. John is a QA engineer. He specializes in test automation, quality assurance, and he currently works for a company called Flow Sports, which is a video sports streaming company. John, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and kind of how you got started into development as well as quality assurance? Sure, Vincent. Thanks for having me on your show. Really happy to share some knowledge. I was in the restaurant industry for about 10 years before I decided I wanted to learn how to code. Uh, did a six-month uh, boot camp here. Fell into the industry with uh, open arms. There's a great opportunity presented to itself uh, after several months of job searching, and that was a uh, QA role. Initially, I was looking for a web development role, so I didn't really know too much if QA was for me. A little bit before this, as background as well, too, I was writing some end-to-end test scripts for a small engineering firm here in Orlando. Um, and that was kind of fun, you know, uh, imitating the browser. I was able to use JavaScript and some really cool stuff that I was already used to. So it was very easy to pick up and then soon fell in love with how QA can be, you know, not so boring as a manual thing and more of an automated thing that can be both exciting and uh, give the team a lot of confidence in their code. Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't actually know that much about quality assurance. So so the, for the podcast episode today, we invited John, who's much more familiar with the whole process of how quality assurance works, as well as how it fits in relation to the software development lifecycle. Yeah, the bootcamp that you went to actually went to your demo day. Yeah. <laughs> and you had like this this crazy project with like four or five different applications and this like game theme based thing. I don't remember the entire details, but it was really cool. It was like the coolest thing that I saw at the at the at the Trilogy Bootcamp. And actually, we were briefly working at the same company as well at different timeframes. Could you tell me a little bit more about how quality assurance works or just like what is it in terms of in tandem to the software development lifecycle? Certainly. Uh, QA can fit in at many different parts of the software development lifecycle, like you said. Usually it's a team that kind of goes along with the developers, just ensuring that the application is performing in the way that it's meant to. Uh, one of the most important steps, I guess, is uh, user acceptance testing, right? You want to make sure that the app is functioning the way that it is intended for the use of the user, right? So before a bug will go into production and then have the users complain about it and send that feedback back to the developers, and then you have to kind of go through and find out where the bug is coming from, which developer wrote the code of the faulty code, you know, the faulty code, it can be somewhat difficult. So the sooner you test and the closer you have the QA department tied with your developers, the easier it is for you to ratify these conditions, right? If you have a continuous process set up, for example, where before you release the code to production, you have a QA department that'll run through like a checklist or, you know, the user acceptance case on the ticket, if you're able to catch that bug before it's released to your staging or your production environments, it's much, much easier, faster, and cheaper to fix it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, though. Especially, uh, you don't want to release a, it, uh, or you don't want to re- at least untested code into production, and then your users find out, and then they start complaining about the, the software not working or causing you know critical errors that are then submitting bad data to your backend, and you're not testing that either. And your customers get angry and leave, right? And then go to your competitor's website and then set up for their site, their services, right? So it's important when you release software that, that everything is tested and accounted for. So when we're going through this process of like creating software, right? I don't have as much experience in QA, but I do work with a QA tester at our company. I work at an agency right now. So we build startup apps for different firms. I'll write the code or just like some of the initial configurations that are then pushed into staging and then into production, you know, after that's tested out. With with our QA tester, at least, when he tests against staging, he actually does a lot of manual testing and some automated testing. Is it is it kind of true for the same with you when you're doing testing at that, that video streaming company place that you work at? So that's important. You point out the two distinct ways to do testing, right? You got manual and you have automated. 
And there's benefits to both. So the old school way before we had all these really neat automation tools was manual. And you would call that a QA analyst, right? So what a quality assurance analyst does is they click through and they basically try to break the app. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, they either have a checklist or they just kind of monkey around in it a little bit to see if they can produce some sort of error. The newer and, and greater and more effective way to do these things is through an automated test sense. With quality assurance, do you find that there's manual testing and then there's automation testing? Do you find that you have to do manual tests in order to do automation tests? Or can you do just purely automation tests to test out your, your software? I don't think that automated test is a complete swap for manual. It's very difficult to write automated tests that will reach 100% code coverage, right? You can measure unit tests with code coverage uh, due to lines reached in your code. But when it comes to automated tests, especially end-to-end browser or like the user mimicking tests, you almost have infinite resources and infinite different ways you can perform action on the app. So I think it's hand-in-hand. I think it would be beneficial to have both going on if that's one person on the QA team doing it or if you have both a QA analyst and an automation engineer on the on the QA department project, I think that's one of the more beneficial ways. So you have the automation relieving pressure from the manual QA that you still have to do. So as much smoke testing, as much, you know, 90% of the use, users are going to be, you know, using the app in this fashion. If you can cover most of that, that's fantastic. But I don't think it's a complete replacement for, you know, still having someone uh, what, what you'd say, troops on the ground, mm-hmm. including their manual QA analyst and, and making sure that everything's in tip-top shape. So, so manual QA testing, or at least QA testing in general. So generally speaking, from my understanding, or at least how we do it, we have user stories and our, our user stories and our application where we'll say like, hey, the use, as a user, I can log into the application. As a user, I can create a new to-do item in this to-do app, right? As a user, I can delete a to-do item in this to-do app list, right? Is that what you kind of see in terms of like your actual check notes when you're actually going through the list of things you have, you have to actually quali- or do QA against? Is it just like story items, essentially, in that sense? In a sense, yes. So if you have automation testing set up in a continuous fashion, which catches most of your cases then that checklist is taken care of and you have a lot of that stuff testing either on staging or right before a release or, or something like that. So, so yes, 100%. There is the other case, and this is probably my hardest job when it comes to automation, is getting the developers to write tests that go along with their tickets. So say a new feature comes out, right? Mm-hmm. And it has the use case, like you said, the checklist as a user, it's got a user story with it. It would be probably the most logical to have the developer write both the new feature and the test with it. And that's kind of one of the hardest things that me as a QA engineer struggle with because I come into a project that has zero automation and I'll Mm -hmm. set up the most that I can according to a list that the project manager gave me or simply exploratory myself or speaking with the manual QA engineer on the team saying, this is what I usually do and try to mimic that to the best of my abilities. Uh, the greatest thing about automation is if you write that once and in, you trust the test to be stable enough and you have confidence with your developers to trust in those, then you only got to write the tests once. So that checklist is no longer part of your manual life cycle, right? Because that's already being implemented and it's already being ran. A user can log in. A user cannot log in with a fake password. A unpaid user cannot hit this route, etc. So it's not so much of a redundant thing like manual QA is anymore. Uh, with automation, a lot of that redundancy is taken care of. So moving forward, once you have a majority of your automation set up, what best practice people really want to see in an automated fashion is tests coming out with features. All right. That makes sense. So as a developer, I I know it's kind of also my responsibility to write tests as well, either unit tests or end-to-end tests, unit tests being tests against specific functions in the code or end-to-end tests where 
you're testing the whole workflow and the whole process in that user story. Like as a user, I can log in. If I create an item here, it'll actually reflect the changes in our in our database or or reflect the changes that are seen on a different page that are kind of related, right? But when it comes from like the top level management side, since I work at an agency, or I mean, it could be just anywhere in general, sometimes upper management sometimes sees QA as not necessarily as vital as development per se. And, and how would you critique against that since you do need both in tandem though, right? And, and some places don't necessarily value QA nearly as high or test automation nearly as high as development. That makes sense. Like how, what's, what, what, what's your counter argument to that? If that makes sense, like what, why QA and test automation is necessarily very necessary for, for the software development cycle. It, it has to come from senior leadership. In my position, I'm, I'm grateful enough to have someone in senior leadership that pushes for it. So in that sense, I have an advocate on that higher level that says, hey, QA is really important. Automation is really important. And here's why. If a bug gets out and it's too far gone down the line or that developer who wrote it's no longer with us or these users are experiencing it and maybe not saying anything back to us, you're losing money, right? You're losing subscriptions, you're getting a bad rep, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I don't know how it would compare with an agency. Maybe it's different because you know, you're know you doing these these quick contracts with people and the project manager is, is you know in their mind making more overhead by pumping them out as fast as possible. But in my case, I'm in a subscription-based web application where we heavily rely on user retention right? And getting more subscriptions. So our app doesn't kind of go down the pipeline anymore. We sit there and we live with it. So I'm grateful enough to have someone in senior leadership vouch for that and then create an advocate out of me. So when I was hired, he said, you're really going to have to be an advocate for automation. You're really going to have to drive this. I had no idea what he was talking about, right? So going through so many different things now, I, I found it beneficial, right? I host, I host what's called a QA guild, you know, we're lucky enough to, in my team to have these sort of cross-team meetings, right? That's not necessarily project-specific, but more of like an info-sharing thing. So people can see how beneficial writing these tests are and, and, and making sure that we get the coverage, we get the tools, and we have everything. The reason why I think people struggle so much, and you have still project managers out there that don't really care about investing in QA is that it's rather new, right? We have Selenium in the early 2000s or possibly before that. Still kind of difficult to work with. You had Cypress come along the last couple of years. A lot of people love it. You can write in JavaScript. Super easy to do end-to-end, right? So that's, you know, filled out this form, hit enter, does it show up on the next page? It's It's got all your integrations and it, it, it tests most closely what the user sees. Right. So I think automation is growing and growing. And I think it's going to hit like a wave. And soon project managers are going to believe that this is something that is, you know, more necessary because it's going to save them in the long run. I just don't think it's so obvious right now because you have another salary to a QA engineer. You have more of your budget that needs to go into the QA department. And right off the bat, it just it's not immediately shown an effect. But it makes sense. Definitely. So I just wanted to point out one thing I noticed, because uh, I've also worked at agencies, like Vincent mentioned, is agencies are very concerned with just going and getting the project out, right? So like, we're going to go ahead and build exactly what they told us to build, and we're going to kick it out. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it's not a problem at that point. So I, I've noticed that now that I work at a software as a service company, for example, at Fat Merchant, QA is a, it's a whole different thing. It's a, it's a proper thing that we go through. Whereas in the previous roles I had at agencies, it's been like, all right, QA, uh, yeah, no, I'll just click around. If it works, it works. It's a whole different feeling. So yeah, I just wanted to like, just jump in and kind of like mention that out. Well, it's good. And I love when a company takes it seriously. I like to talk about the shift left versus shift right formats of testing, right? Shifting left is, is testing very, very early in the software development lifecycle. QA is a huge part of releases in the, in the beta form. They are there to make sure even the smallest integrations are passing in their very early development. This is very hard to do, though, if you walk in and you hire a QA department or you're just getting your guy writing test scripts on an app that's already in production. 
So what that would be called is, okay, we have this app in production, we keep getting bugs and we keep getting poor feedback from our users. So we want to start writing tests. Where do you begin, right? You wouldn't start at the unit testing level, like like Vincent mentioned, you know, you're not going to start testing your function, but you want to start catching these things. Hey, the users complain a lot that they can't log in. So that would be the first test that you write. So if you have an existing project in production and you want to start spending on QA, you would start with the shift right approach, right? Say that the app is already out. It's been created. It's been, you know, it's been planned and analyzed, designed, implemented, created, it's out. So we have to start writing this coverage that'll be closest to what our users see. This is beyond unit integration, uh, API testing, everything. This says, hey, uh, load up the page, click in the email and password, hit enter, can I log in? And if you're able to catch these bugs from end to end on the shift left spectrum, right? It's already done. Then uh, that's a great way to start. But, you know, the earlier, the better, I guess. So that shift left approach comes in early and often. If you're just getting started with your app and you're able to write unit tests along with the functions as you write them, it's so much easier. You're not going to have a huge backlog. You're not going to have a huge, uh, you know, list of user stories because you would have been doing it all this entire time. So with, with testing, though, well, I, I didn't even know about the shift right or shift left analogy. It's something I just learned. When you're talking about test coverage, there, there's... A, you know, how much of your app is tested, right? Is it just part of your front end, part of your back end? How much of the core features are actually tested against? How do you measure test coverage when it comes to, to, to quality assurance or to test automation? In my experience, there's tools. Lucky for me, there's, you know, an NPM package out for everything. So we use stuff like CodeCov or, you know, there, there's others out there which will almost act as a plugin. So you'll have your unit tests run and then this thing almost listens to where where it's firing off and what parts of your code are getting hit. So this is something that's actually measurable to a percentage, right? So if you have 10 functions in your application, you have tests written for five of them, you got 50% coverage. So unit tests are so much easier to measure because you can have something listen, you know, line per line, what's getting hit, what's getting read, what's getting executed. End-to-end tests are a little bit harder to measure code coverage, right? Because like I said, you got edge cases, you have, you have, you know, what we would call jerk testing or monkey testing, where you go in and you just give it some ridiculous stuff. It's called fuzzing, right? You have some Mm -hmm. sort of random generator input 100 spaces for your email address. You know, how is your application going to respond? So with that like infinite ability, and then, especially with an end-to-end test where you have multiple steps, even, you know, hey, I want to log in as this user. I want to save this to my dashboard. I want to delete it and make sure that it doesn't show up. There's five steps. There's five page navigations, and there's an infinite uh, amount of ways that you could do that. So uh, measuring code coverage with end-to-end tests is a lot harder. I know things like Cypress have plugins that you can use. This is all very cool stuff that, that you could probably measure. And then API testing. You can easily count how many routes you have on your back end, right? You know, I have this many gets, this many posts, a couple of patches and a couple of deletes. So that's a pretty measurable thing you could do, you know, on your hands and toes. But yeah, so you can get your little badge on your GitHub repository, say 100% coverage, and that's usually corresponding to your unit tests. Um, And then everything in between. Yeah, I I guess the whole... 100% 100% t- test coverage is just like a myth, right? It's not <laughs> something that it's not, it's not something you can measure in reality, right? Well, they, they're they, actually measuring it qualitatively for the most part. It was end-to-end test, right? They cover they cover test-driven development, you know, in in one day. So that's not something that sticks with 100% of grads these days, and it's definitely not something when your project manager is trying to get it out the door so you can get the next one going, right? If you are creating an app yourself and you're purposefully doing test-driven development, very similar to mobile-first development, right? Like, I want to specifically write this app to look really good on mobile and also on big windows, right? You would do this specifically to have a thoroughly 100% tested app, and it's possible. In huge applications, millions of users uh, that have been around for decades on old legacy code, you're probably not going to have 100% coverage. But if you're sitting there and trying to teach yourself something new or you have a small team or you know generous amounts for your QA department and your developers are on board from the creation, it's definitely possible. 
what are some other things that you could test? So you could test like the login workflow. You can test functions for with the unit test. But can you do you actually run tests against like how large an image is on the page or more visual elements on your web app, or is that not something that you do when it comes to testing? Oh yeah, you can do anything. So if you have, for example, smoke DOM. UI tests, right? Where you just make a request to the page and make some assertions against the bare HTML, right? So you're not waiting for a React library to render the components and and do some stuff with that, right? I just want to get the the page that's being rendered and then make sure all the LIs are in order or make sure that my H1 says this or make sure the footer is there. So these are bare smoke tests, right? If you want to load that image, you can simply pull the URL, load it in a different sort of context and measure it and make an assertion that it is matching that 400 pixels or, you know, it's this big on a small screen or this big on a large screen. It's definitely possible. And then speaking of visual testing, that's actually one of my favorite setup test automation and one hour methods is screenshot comparison. So you can have your screenshot comparison test run. If there is no screenshot there, take a screenshot and use that as the control, right? Mm-hmm. That's like a five line test that you can write. You upload it to your repository. You set up some continuous integration service like Travis CI, Circle CI, and have that test run every time you push to GitHub. So unless you're doing design test, right? You're just changing a route or something or you know, changing something, you would then on your next push, take another screenshot, compare it to the control, and then raise a red flag or block the pull request or you know, hit up the Slack channel, whatever reporting you want to use to say, hey, this did not meet the 90% threshold that we said that this was going to look like the control, right? That makes sense. So you were saying something about screenshot comparisons, actually. That's actually an interesting topic. Is it the way that works is you take a screenshot at one point in time and then you run that test against another, well, you run it to that test again with a different screenshot and you just compare, I guess, colors on the image if they're the same color at a certain pixel and then that is a passing test. Right. So this is not making assertions on the specific elements in the DOM, right? It's not reading the HTML and saying that this H1 says this. It's just doing screenshot comparison with, I don't know, a library we have rolled into some custom tool at, at, at my day job, but yeah, it's, it's it's as simple as that. You set the threshold, obviously, because we have ads on our page, right? It's not always going to meet the same ad every time. So you set a, a threshold, say it must look 90% the same. So colors, yeah, straight on down to the pixel. And then if it's too much, right, if it's only matching 50% because you accidentally put this div in here that pushed everything down and it looks ugly and you didn't check it yourself, you, it would get caught in CI. It would get caught in your pre-push git hook or wherever you you set your screenshot comparison up and it will actually save the diff right it'll it'll highlight all the different pixels red and then send it to your slack channel if you want to and say hey this doesn't look good this is the difference right and you'll look at that and be like oh that got moved this color got changed on accident because i'm using this css library or, you know, the data's not coming in and it's not saying my H1, it's saying undefined or whatever, you know? So, yeah. And that I, the only reason I mention this visual screenshot comparison is because it's so simple, right? You throw your five main routes in an iterable and then you just run that same test on those five and it saves those five screenshots somewhere. And then, you know, you make those comparisons along the line. You, you bring up another good point about third-party services, or at least with ads, right? Since you're running ads on your web app, right? How do you test against a third-party API? Like if you want to make sure that API is running correctly in staging and production and and just, just different environments, right? Let's say you're using Stripe's API for taking money through the platform. How do you test a third-party API system? Or do you do test against that? Yeah, so I like that you mentioned Stripe because Stripe has an awesome API that'll actually give you a fake credit card number. Uh, Mm -hmm. Several different fake credit card numbers, in fact, that'll say this credit card number should be expired, right? This credit card number should be reported stolen or, or is inaccurate or whatever. So they actually, if the third party has the documentation and has the abilities to test it in your own hands, 
then 100% take care of that action. Because, you know, the Stripe integration may act one way and say this card is is expired or whatever, but you might want to pick up on that and maybe send an email to your user and say, hey, we could not renew your subscription, right? So testing a third-party API and making sure that your application is accepting its calls properly and you're handling it properly on your end is 100% something you want to do. As far as the deeper parts of a third-party integration, or if they do not provide this in their documentation, that's something that would I would leave to manual QA, right? <laughs> or just trust in their third-party system. You know, I chose them because I trust that their product is viable. There's no way I can test this because it's in their own hands and they don't provide the documentation or the mock or the stub or the fuzz or whatever I need to make the assertion, right? I just trust that it works. You know, that, I guess, you would make your best attempt. And this kind of brings up another good topic as black box texting. Mm-hmm. What is black box texting? Black box testing is your availability to the source code. So black box, gray box, white box will sort of say, you know, black box is saying, I don't have any access to the source code. I don't know what it does. I don't know how the code is written or how it works on the internals. I just know what comes out the other end. So there's only a certain amount of, you know, testing that you can do on that says I put in this, you know, X goes in, Y comes out. Whereas if you got gray box, and this is kind of what I'm working on, because I'm working on right now writing automated tests for a huge PHP platform, and I am trained in Node. I know very little about PHP. I have access to the code, but I'm not really sure on what it does or how it works. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a level right of of automation of stubs that I can send in or API mocks that I can do with this code because I have access to some of it and I can kind of read some of it. White boxes, I'm completely understanding of the source code. I know how it works. I know how it's written. I know what it does. You can do, obviously, much more in-depth testing with that. That's that's all new to me, actually. I never heard of the term white box, gray box, and black box. Well, black box, I've heard of, you know, and not just in our industry, but just in other industries as well, especially in engineering. When it comes to, like, maintenance of QA tests and QA testing code, how does that work exactly? Like, like, like when you write, let's say you're writing a test case against, you know, a user logging in and that user goes to a dashboard, right? But let's say for whatever reason, you want to take that user to a whole different dashboard, right? So your original test case is saying user logs in and goes to dashboard one. But now in, in, the, in the reworked workflow, right, in terms of like the user experience on the app, they're actually going to dashboard two, right? Your test case for that first end-to-end test is no longer valid. How do you kind of account for that change on the QA code, at least, or on the QA test? In that specific case, it's in the hands of the developer to make communication with the QA, that if their test is breaking due to a change that they're making and it's on purpose, you know, you're either responsible as the developer to know how to alter that test. But if there's, you know, if the automated test is in some language you're not used to and you have a QA automation engineer, you could simply pass it to them. Hey, I wrote this test in the first place. I know how to fix it really quick. I can do that. But you're bringing up a very big, important detail, and that's maintenance of flaky end-to-end tests, right? If the Mm -hmm. tests are not passing and it's not so much that the code is breaking, but that the tests are poorly written, you're going to lose confidence with your developers. They're going to start to turn them off. They're going to start to ignore them. They're going to start to do the release with a bunch of failing tests. So writing very stable, 99% passing, very confident test cases is crucial to an automated test platform for your for your application. So as long as the communications there that the tester and the developer both know that the changes are actually being made intentionally, then you can go forward from there. So you do have to, whenever you do adjust code that's already existing, the QA test code also has to adjust with it, basically. So there is some maintenance there. So I have another question, though. When it comes to frameworks like Cypress or Selenium that kind of automate browser testing, right? it, it runs on like a totally separate instance or a separate application that's not necessarily tied to the main app, right? So you can run like your web app, whatever stack it is, and then you're running those tests against a different app, right? With, with Cypress, at least, can you connect to, say, a database at the same time and run tests both on like the automation side on the browser and then t- check against like the database and see if those values are correct? 
on the other end. Like one is like coming in, testing from like the browser side, another one's testing from the data side. That makes sense. And you're actually using that and comparing those. So I guess one way I have it set up is I go through the browser and I create this new entity through the web app as a user normally would. And then I want to make an API call assertion and make sure that my API is communicating with the database and making sure that that data has been posted there. Is that what? So, so with, with, with Cypress, right, you could just run tests, see like it, as a user, I can log in, right? So you log in with the test case user, right? And then it shows the dashboard and you check there's like an element on the page that loads up and then that's a passing test for that case, right? But let's say you log in as that user and on the first part of the page, you see analytics on that dashboard and you want to make sure those analytics are correct, right? From the actual database side. Can you take that test and also do a SQL query as part of your automation script and check if that if those dashboard analytics are correct, does that make sense? I wonder if the SQL query I have never I have not done it like that. I've certainly done it through the API, but I wonder if you could you know like you said set up a completely new app maybe in a containerization service like Docker perhaps, mm-hmm. and if you have some SQL query like a SQL dump or something like that that you would you know use, I think it would be more popular to use as like a mock or a stub, right? So I'd run some SQL query to feed the application this data and then make sure that it is appearing on the other end. I think the question you're asking is, can I use the UI to post some sort of data? And then can I make a SQL query to then validate the assertion, right? So that with a SQL query, what the user just put in was placed there properly and, uh, you know, is, is what it should be. Yeah, it, it, it's just the actual issue that I came across in the web app that I'm working on right now. We're actually trying to implement testing with Selenium and Java. And to my understanding, you could, because since it's running on a completely different application, it could just still connect to your database, right, and still have the automation testing against the UI and then check against both of them. But and also I read that Cypress can also do that too in the documentation. I just wasn't sure if you actually played around with it before or if that was a common thing. It's entirely it's entirely uh, possible. <laughs> we have we have probably five different environments that we are testing on my application, right? We have a local dev environment. We have two different CI environments that connect to one connects to a copy of the production database and one has like a bare bones database that we feed with a SQL dump. So we go in through the UI and create the things that we need to test against to make a very simple smoke test, right? Just very bare bones. There's like one value in each table or a couple different uh, relations or whatever's necessary to make sure that, hey, this thing doesn't explode when I turn it on. And then from that, we create a SQL dump file. So what that'll do is it'll see the database and then I can run the test. I think that's more common in my case. And then we have two staging environments where, you know, again, one is a copy of the production database, a, a replica, and then one is just a bunch of goofy stuff that we just fuzz around with. So I like to test the goofy one stuff and I'll use the UI and then the API. So I'll go and create a, an event, for example, and I'll register some people to the event through a automated end-to-end test. And then after that, I'll make a couple API calls. We'll say, hey, is that event there? Are these people registered for that event? Good. Break it down and then send the API call to delete it. Then I'll send another assertion to make sure that that was, in fact, deleted. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so you're just communicating through your database only through the API that already exists. That's the question I was asking. So a different question I have, actually, you're bringing up CICD pipelines. When you're writing code against your your feature branch, right, and you're building out a new feature for whatever you're building, right, and you finish that feature, and then you make a pull request against the development branch, right, you're running CICD against, you know, different branches like staging, production, or not staging, development, production, whatever, right? When you're doing that, can you run the test before that code gets merged in, right? Or does it, or you just run it first, and then it tests if that fails or passes when it's already in that branch. Well, again, 100%. You can go into GitHub and say this pull request must pass all checks before it can be merged, right? Just a small setting in the in your in your GitHub 
that'll say, you know, I need two reviewers and it needs to pass all checks. And what that'll do is your CI provider, like Travis CI, Circle CI, whatever you use, will report back to GitHub. So it'll be listening on your repository. When you make a push and it is open to be a pull request, then the tests are triggered. Circle CI, for instance, will use a Docker environment or whatever executor that you choose, spin up everything that you need to do according to the config that you've written, build your environment, connect to this database, uh, run your tests, and then if they pass, report back to GitHub, and then you get a really neat little green check mark. So if your team has that set up where it strictly needs to pass, that's called, I think, green light testing, right? Your build or green light build, and that is a measurable technical health assessment saying we only accept pull requests if they pass CI CD, right? Or CI mm-hmm. for this instance. That's best practice, yeah. Um, there's also really cool stuff like pre-push Git hooks, right? So you can set up a Git hook, which will do stuff like linting, right? Or unit tests. These things are done in seconds or milliseconds. Can be set up either in the Git hidden files, or you can use an NPM package or something like Husky, which will say, hey, lint every time I want to make a commit. If you try to lint and you have some syntactical error and it, it fails, it will not let you commit. So these are these are the kind of blockers that will hold you back. If you have an automated, really healthy automated CI/CD pipeline, which will kind of you know force quality on the developers, and I love it. It's great. How do you actually push your test code, unit tests, or your end-to-end tests to that CI/CD pipeline against that branch that you want to protect against? So in my most common case, they live with the code in the repository. You have a test directory where you have either Cypress set up or you have, you know, your test directory with unit tests or whatever you want. So with your CI provider, you normally have a configuration file where you say this is how you build the application and this is how you test it. And what that config file will do and what the CI provider will do is it'll listen to GitHub. When you make a push, it will check out your code to an ephemeral branch, right? It'll bring your code over to its own workspace as Mm -hmm. a service. It'll build it according to what you've listed in the config and it'll test it. And then it'll report back on the return code, you know, either zero or error one or whatever, whatever you've written your code to say. So from the developer's perspective, right? When I'm writing just like a new feature branch and then I want to then, if everything passed in a regressional manner, right? If all the old features that are in the application are not affected, I just have to make a PR against that branch or can I actually still run it locally instead? Like, can I can I run those tests locally first before C, or Circle CI runs them as I'm writing like the feature to make sure everything is working along the way before I find out once I make the pull request that there's a problem? Absolutely. And that, in my opinion, is a really healthy test case where you can simply, with the use of an environment variable, set the environment, right? So I want to run this locally before I push it because I don't want to wait for CI to build because that can take two to 10 minutes, right? I want to test it locally before I send that. So if you have your local environment set up to look at perhaps localhost, right? It'll use that environment local to build and run your tests. That's great. And then what's cool is you can have in your, you know, test framework, set up the different environments to say, hey, I can test this locally, I can test this in CI, I can test it in staging, and I can test it in production. And it's all the same tests. And all I got to do is switch out the environment, like I said, with the use of a variable or a flag or a command line option or something like that. And those are my favorite, favorite tests are, are the ones that the developers can try before they push it up to the CI provider, it fails because if it goes to CI and it fails and the developer doesn't really know why, it comes to my desk, right? <laughs> so that's why in my perfect world, the developers are involved in the automation process, right? If I'm starting with a new uh, application, new project, I want to have a mob testing session where I show the developers, hey, this is the tool we're going to use for automated testing. It would be really cool if I can get even a single assertion with your tickets um, that way the test is there. You know how to debug it. You know if it's failing, hey, is it a flaky test or is it is it something wrong with the code itself? So that's a great question is, can I run it locally? Yes, and you should. Also, another question as well. You're saying that you could, when you're running these these tests, right, the, the test code usually lives in like a configuration or like a YML file in your repo. 
and then it like has all the actual test code inside of there. What happens if you have like your back end living in one repo and your front end living in a different repo? Or, you know, you might have several front end repos for all you know, like maybe several back end repos. But like in the case that you have one back end repo and one front end repo, where does the test code live? If you're running like an end to end test where you're saying like as a user, I can log in. Right. And it maybe has to check through the entire workflow front to back. How does that CI CD pipeline work in that case? Well, let me talk. I'm going to spin that a little bit and talk about like you want to talk about multiple services, right? So say you have a microservice architecture where everything is in its own little place and you don't know where to put the tests. You can actually build, and this is something that we've done at Flow Sports, is mm-hmm. build a services repository that it's a it's a load testing platform. So all the tests live in this repository, and then it comes with its own custom CLI that we wrote that has endpoints that you can hit, right? So this is a live application that all it does is um, it, it does load test you know, uh, resources, and we have probably five different services loaded into that platform. So mm-hmm. you hit a specific endpoint, and you send it parameters that you want. It's really, really cool because it's all done in Google Cloud Build and, and Kubernetes in a really, really neat fashion is we have it set up on a cron schedule. So what the cron will do is it'll set it up on this certain time and date and we'll get the test reported back to either Slack or something like that. I mean, it's a little harder to hold back pull requests if it's in different... Actually, no, because you have access to the endpoint, right? So even if you have your tests in a a test runner like Blaze Meter or Ghost Inspector, right? These are test services that live on the web. So you would go on the web, you'd create an account, you'd point it at the URLs that you want, normally a staging URL, because these third-party separate code test suites don't have direct access to the repository unless you explicitly give it to it, right? So you're saying if the tests don't live with the code, how do you do that? Usually it's done on a staging or a production environment, right? You're not going to have any smoke tests done or integration tests, right? These are going to be, like you said, regression tests and more importantly, health checks like load tests, stress tests, stuff like that. Where does the application break? And that's usually done on the shift right approach, right? So like a little later down the line where you simply have an endpoint that you hit and you send it the parameters. I want to test this service. I want to send it this many virtual users. I want to test it for 20 minutes straight. And I just want these guys to attack this endpoint every second and then report back how many non 200s did we get, right? Mm-hmm. And that's so, so cool and powerful because you can test any service anywhere. You just don't have access to the to the base code unless you specifically give it access to it. And that, that can be a little bit more tricky. And I, I might even be wrong. This is just what I've, I've seen in my own projects is that this is normally something if the tests are living separate from the repository, something that you're you're running these tests against a staging environment or a very accessible URL or um, even even production. Say you jump in to a project with no automation, no manual tests, nothing like that. I need to start running tests now. It would be against production, and you've so, got to get that coverage and that reporting back before you can start moving into the earlier cycles of the software development. You know, starts testing before staging or holding back pull requests like we talked about, et cetera. That's interesting. That almost, so you could, you could literally just have, it's almost like testing as a service, right? Where you have a separate and completely separate application that you could just say, hey, service, go hit my local, well, I guess you can't really hit local host, but for, but you can also like, for instance, like run Angrok or something like that, where you right. push your code out to the public and then, you can have that testing service actually interact with your code that's actually served up on the web, even though it's running from your computer, your computer is a server in this instance. But you could do it that way too. That's that's something I never thought about actually. And, and this style of testing is usually closer related, at least in my experience, to DevOps and infrastructure, right? Because they mm-hmm. want to test load, you know, stress, like how many users can we take a second before it'll break? And then how can we scale, right? So if you got your tests separate from the repository and you want to hit these different services, it's usually in the hands of, you know, QA with DevOps. Hmm. Which is more or less test automation, right? A test automation engineer is kind of a blend of both QA and... That's why I'm so excited about it, too. Is <laughs> when I graduated my web dev boot camp, I was like, 
I get to be a superstar web developer. And then this QA opportunity came and I was like, man, I don't want to be just QA, but it has turned out to be such a cool opportunity because I'm, I'm well integrated with, you know, some of the blood and guts of software deployment, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm down in the config files of how does the code get from my computer to production? And I'm in the midst of this kind of workings of, all right, we're going to containerize this repo. We're going to build it with these five services. We're going to test. We're going to delete our stuff that we just made, and we're going to tear it down like it never existed. And then we're going to report back to Slack. And everything in between that is not just like what a QA analyst would do, even though their work is very, very important as well, too. I, I find it exciting. And you know, as someone who spent the money and went six months through boot camp, I'm satisfied in, in a role like this because of the opportunities where it's leading me towards uh, DevOps infrastructure, mm-hmm. and then even if I did want to get into front end or back end development, API development, framework stuff, I've got the JavaScript experience. I have the object oriented or program oriented, ex- uh, you know, language experience where you know it's it's not just a moot kind of click on this until it breaks sort of thing. That's awesome, though. Yeah, you're working on like the actual like the the cutting edge of QA. I mean, this isn't like traditional QA. This is like a whole new thing, at least. I mean, your company actually has developed its own QA framework as well, right? That's right. We got Flagpole, which will roll in, shameless plug here, it'll roll in all the tools you need for any typical kind of styling that you want, whether it is API backend, you know, making assertions on endpoint HTTP requests, whether it is UI smoke testing, screenshot comparison, all the way up to -to end-to-end testing. You can write the test in the same language in the same style in the same context and then just kind of switch it out where need be and you can do multiple different types of styling and in different types of testing in one style wait so the reason that your company has created its own qa test framework as opposed to using something like cypress which i believe you're still using as well what what are like the core benefits i mean if i recall correctly you were also running puppeteer which is a a service for doing automation on the front end for say scraping data or test and also just testing different things on the UI. What is the core differentiator between Flagpole or the core differentiator differentiating features between Flagpole and what's on the market? Uh, variety. So you know, Flagpole stuck to testing anything that's on the web as the user would see it. I know they can make some API assertions in their own uh, library, but I think Flagpole brings versatility to the field. And like I mm-hmm. said, if you know JavaScript, you can write in Flagpole. You may need a little async await, right? Knowledge mm-hmm. to be like understanding of how how the data is moving, what to wait for. You know, you don't want to do explicit waits like hit this and then wait for two seconds and then hit that. You know, you would write more implicit waiting. So it's fun. They're both very, very cool tools. Cypress has been around for a while. They got a team working on it. Gleb Bamatov is one of my heroes. He's the VP over at Cypress. And um, he believes that the triangle of testing, right? And what the triangle is, is you should do most of your testing unit. And then you should do some integration at the very top of the triangle is your end-to-end tests, right? That's a Mm -hmm. typical way to think about testing is, you know, you should have hundreds and thousands of unit tests written. That way, you stop the bug way, way, way early, right? Shift left. I want to stop the bug way early. That way, at the end... You know, I have very little bugs and I can only write 10 end-to-end tests if I want to, and then that'll be done. He flips that triangle upside down and says that we, we should be doing most end-to-end testing because this is what the user sees and this was what most likely, you know, can be tested at a wider range. So I appreciate his vision on that and I appreciate everything Cypress is doing. Flagpole just seems more versatile and it's it's in its infancy still, right? It was a hackathon project, actually. About two years ago, RVP at Flow Sports, Jason Byrne, wrote the flagpole library to include Puppeteer for end-to-end. It has Cheerio for HTML, DOM assertions. We just switched out our API library to use Needle, you know, so they make HTTP requests for us. And it's a very, very neat fashion because you can write these and make the same, use the same methods and assertion methods and, that you would in an end-to-end test in an API test. So hmm. I think having the same language do so many different things is, is beneficial because not only do you have your QA engineer writing tests, but it would be very obvious to your developers as well. How would I write a test for that? They both have hmm. very 
shallow learning curves. So they're both very easily set up. You know, Cypress uses the Mocha and Chai assertion library, where Flagpole's a little bit more homemade, but it's they're, they, they both got their, their pros and cons. But I think the winner for Flagpole is versatility. Hmm. That's interesting. I, you just brought up uh, another question that I just had at the back of my mind as well. Not related to Flagpole specifically, but to, to unit testing coverage, uh, end-to-end testing, et cetera. With TypeScript, right, you're bringing the, the features of a statically typed language over to JavaScript, which is a dynamically typed language, right? And you could run, you know, when you're running like a function and that function you know, does something in the application, let's say it's a pure function and it just returns what it gets. Do you see value in having unit tests when you're also doing typing in your code? Right. Yes. And this brings up a really, really cool library that we've been using with TypeScript called FastCheck. And what FastCheck will do is you can test and we do what's called property testing with this. In our functional programming, even though we have a uh, static typed language, you know, like TypeScript, there's still many things that you are going to let slip by. I guess a couple examples are you know, null and undefined and, and everything else like that. So bringing back to the jerk and monkey testing, like I said, you know, you have still some edge cases that you wouldn't catch with your TypeScript validator. You can dynamically create, here's an example, with FastCheck Library, you can dynamically create 1,000 different random strings that have numbers or different data types that you want and send it to this one function or component, basically test the properties of what's returned out of that in like, you know, 10 milliseconds. And it's really, really fascinating how the whole thing works. I don't know how with caching or what, but it's it's super fast and it's super powerful. So uh, yeah, I think even with a typed language like TypeScript, it is uh, it's definitely beneficial to be doing any, uh, unit testing on it as well, too. And that brings up another thing with Flagpole and Cypress is Cypress recently added TypeScript support, right? You can re- even write your tests in in, in TypeScript, uh, but it still uses read TypeScript and execute it as JavaScript without compiling it. NPM package, do you know what I'm talking about? Which NPM package are we talking oh, man, about? There's one where you can, you can run TypeScript as JavaScript without compiling it. TS node. TS node, it's TS node, and then you have for testing, you can use TS jest. TS jest, right? If, if you use jest. So Cypress's yeah. test runner uses TS node right now, so you can write tests in TypeScript, assert that you know whatever's happening with your components or functions or uh, whatever, but it still uses TS node, and we've we've seen a little bit of flake with that. Flagpole is built on TypeScript. Uh, So a lot of its methods, and I guess this doesn't really have to do with the source code itself, but a lot of the testing methods are so easily documented and and then so easily worked with because you have the ability to write your tests in TypeScript and compile them down to JavaScript and run that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all the questions I have, uh, unless you have any questions, German. No, but earlier on I had a joke I couldn't get in. (laughs) Uh, Just... You know, he was talking about jerk testing and all that stuff. It's the typical joke of um, a QA walks into a bar, he orders an AAA, he orders an AA22, and then like different variations of characters. I don't know if you guys have heard that joke before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, sorry, when you mentioned that, that's the first thing that came to my head. No, but gosh, I learned a lot. I mean, for me, QA, it's a little bit more like I'll work on a ticket, give it like push it up, and then maybe QA will kick it back and be like, hey, fix this. Or like, why is this not working? But I actually learned an insane amount about all the things that go behind the scenes to actually keep the application from being um, destroyed. Basically, uh, protect the application from us developers <laughs> and our crazy ways. And it's funny how picky QA will be uh, closer to the deadline, right? So if you're at the very beginning of a sprint and the QA finds a bug, they'll kick it back, no problem. But if you you know you got your release coming up in two days. And something is kind of broken, you know, it's tough for QA to make that call that is this a blocker or, you know, should we, you know, let it go and take care of it in the next sprint? So agile development is something we didn't really talk about a whole lot in depth, but, you know, we did speak about QA being a part of the life cycle in a manual way, you know, at what strength do they have to kick back or hold back a feature release due to the severity of a bug. 
And that's kind of a dynamic as well, too. It, it all depends on time and budget and severity and your user cases and stuff like that, too. And it's, it's kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah, so that, that's really awesome. Just like, yeah, I learned a lot, too, as well. Just I did, there were so many things I didn't know about QA uh, when it comes to shift left and shift right, as well as just some of the specific things you're talking about related to what you can do with CI/CD pipelines, as well as how to run your tests and where you can run your test at. And just like the critical importance of having tests in the beginning and as well as the different types of QA um, that exist out there, which I know like testing automation was kind of new to me. Um, I definitely was more familiar with like the QA manual side just because I have to do it myself as a developer as well. And also a QA tester has to do it too. But the whole automation side is kind of new to me. So this is really cool. German, do you want to start with dessert time? Definitely, man. So... Oh, guys, I always forget to tell people about the cert time, exactly what it is. It's a little like section where we get to kind of have like a little blog, a little just talk about whatever, about the things going on in our lives. Hopefully it's something sweet. That's reason it's called the cert time. It's what we want to finish up with. Uh, although some people do have this cert for the first course, but I guess we're, we're being normal here. So uh, Vincent, you want to talk to us about what's going on in your life? So, so I think the format for this dessert time is a little different just because we have John on the podcast and he's our Oh, that is right. For this, for this dessert, when we were originally coming up with the intro and outro design, John actually helped pioneer a lot of it. So um, we were coming up with so many different ideas of what we wanted to do with the intro in terms of the different sound effects, because we wanted to reminisce kind of from our restaurant backgrounds, the podcast being like the experience that you sit down at a restaurant, right? You go to the restaurant, have a seat, your waiter comes to you or your waitress and you order and then you leave hopefully satisfied with your meal, right? So we wanted to create Coach as kind of as, as a way to reminisce that kind of experience. So this is kind of what Coach Chefs is about. And really glad to have John on board as our first guest for this podcast, just because there's just so many different things we had to work on in the last three to four months to get this podcast up and running. There were so many things that we kind of ran across that we didn't know how to do for the first time just like the recording sessions and learning how to actually podcast correctly, all the audio equipment issues that we've run into and had problems with. It's been a fun journey so far. And we're actually recording before we're doing our full release uh, for the first episode. So this is going to be our sixth episode, I believe, German, right? So this has been a really cool experience, just, just like actually having a platform to talk about cool things in tech. One of the things that I was attracted to with the idea of Code Chefs and it being a, you know, a restaurant and foodie kind of theme is that sharing a meal with somebody is one of the most intimate things that you can do, right? It's very human, very like caveman-y kind of thing is we all need nutrition. We all need to feed ourselves. So eating with your hands and your mouth and getting dirty and sloppy is, is very in line with information sharing, right? So if you as you know, developers can share some sort of new knowledge that may not be totally apparent to everyone in the field. I think it brings us closer together as a community, and uh, I'm really happy to play a part. Yeah, no, definitely. You can't really be an expert in everything, right? You could be really familiar with something in front-end development, but you might be really, really inexperienced with something related to DevOps or QA or back-end development. You can't specialize in everything and just like the great part of or at least in the tech community is people are always sharing about what things they learn either on blogs or on podcasts or on twitter or on youtube or whatever and it's just such an open community where developers and qa analysts and managers alike can just share things they learn in the software field itself so it's really cool and we're yeah, like i said coach Chess is just all about that Definitely. Gosh, I forgot I was going to add something here. Well, yeah, I guess I guess you guys want to talk about something. Is one thing we all have in common is a different thing. Like we all have like restaurant background. So, John, you want like tell us about like your background before you became a developer? Yeah, I mean, I was a sandwich maker in high school. <laughs> sandwich artist. Yeah, artist. <laughs> right. Is that artist or artist? I always had that you know creative side. Uh, you know. <laughs> I put the mustard on top or the bottom, you know, no, I don't know. There was something fulfilling about customer service that I really liked, um, you know, but also it was kind of the quick cash that came with waiting tables, you know, fast paced environment, working with the team, keeping a, a smile on your face in, in stressful situations. So the one thing I miss now that I'm a developer is, uh, standing, I guess. <laughs> Yay. Uh, I am sorry. That was my you're, podcast. You're, I was, you're really I was to try that out, didn't you, German? 
No, I was actually trying to delete them, um, and I actually ended up clicking oh, no. one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. That's kind of like the same, kind of similar things that I miss. I miss like how fast things used to move compared to like now. Things move fast, but there's a lot more steps in between like what the work that we do and what we see the actual right. right like in a restaurant you just do you just go and you serve and you wait and you hit table from table and you, you you get the orders in and the food out but now as a developer there's so much planning you have to do right you're you're thinking and you're researching and you're reading the docs a lot more than you are writing code and that was one thing i struggled with is i would just start writing code you know because that's the pace that i was used to and then i would end up deleting three quarters of it or replacing it with this and copying and pasting that so it was definitely an adjustment yeah you don't get that instant gratification you have to you get delayed gratification <laughs> but but that delayed gratification is so rewarding when you see that app finally getting released to the public and you're going hey i was actually part of the creation of that and people are using it that's awesome hey man i'm happy when it opens a local host i don't care <laughs> <laughs> i'm happy my code even runs and my testing <laughs> work that i can even turn on my computer yeah. That's how I feel all the time, actually. Yeah, I, I do. I do miss that experience of just that fast-paced environment where you actually get to see the end result like right away. Customer asks you a question or request something, you're just done all within the same hour, right? But development's like that way. It's a little slower. I feel like I had slower. more restaurant and serving dreams that I do like development dreams. Like I still dream in code sometimes, but just the other night I was dreaming of my days back at Subway again, and I was waiting on a sandwich. <laughs> I think so. Oh man, I I, mean, I used to never like dreaming with the kitchen timers. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think I want to think about that again. That's the one thing I didn't like. I used to dream with like the fries timers. beeping, like they're ready to be picked out of the oil. Yeah. Fries, yeah, a bunch of like oh, different no. timers. Like, oh my god. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think that pretty much ends our episode. Yeah. So so thanks for tuning in to coach us and we'll see you in the next one bye guys and thank you for being here with on being here with us John. check please <laughs> thanks for having me thanks for dining with us on code chefs we hope we satisfied your hunger for show notes and more insider info on today's topic visit our website at www.codechefs.dev Plus, follow us on Twitter at CodeChefsDev. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and join us back here for the next one. Uh, Check, please.